The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that we're all about finding strategies that provide your business the inside track, which is the best, smartest, and fastest way to get something done. But what happens if you've got a business that is a commodity-style business? What if what if you're just another one of those companies that mines rocks or something simple and dull? Is it possible to position yourself as a technology company to maximize your value and ultimately take the company public and make a big deal out of it? Well, we've got uh, the CEO of Western Magnesium Corp uh, with us, uh, a, 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 a public company that has done exactly this. They've got a vision. They've got technology that has taken commodities uh, to a totally different and new level. So Sam, welcome to the show. Fascinating uh, to hear from you. And, and I look forward to hearing how you've done it and how you put your team together and what you did, because this is really something special. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Joel. I really appreciate it. And it's good to be on. Well, good. So uh, first, first, just tell us, and, and, and please try not to be scientific or technical, because none of us are going to understand a word you're saying if you do that. What exactly do you guys do? And, and then we'll kind of go from there. It's very simple. We're going to be producing magnesium metal. That is our only focus. That's what we're going to be doing. And we're bringing back the production of magnesium metal into the United States for U.S. industry specifically, like the auto, aerospace, airline, eco-friendly technology companies like car battery companies and government, Department of Defense. That's our main focus, uh, our industries in the Department of Defense. And only in the United States, by the way, we're not planning on going global. We're staying local because the demand is so high that we want to service our industries here first. So uh, first, tell us about magnesium. Is it, you know, what does it do? And hate to be so basic, but just, you know, what I know it's a rare one, but go ahead and just tell us what, what does it do? Absolutely. Well, the reason why magnesium has become so popular now, you know, if I'm asked the question, people go out, you know, I go out on the street and ask people the question, you know, what do you think of magnesium? They, they typically say, oh, you know, I take it from our arthritis. It's good for my constitution. Or somebody will say, hey, geez, I like mag wheels. But 
the public and especially financiers, institutional financiers are not yet aware of the importance of this metal because to date it's been a composite metal. What I mean by that is you need magnesium to, to make titanium. You need magnesium to make aluminum and that's how it's been viewed up until now. And that is because we need, desperately need lightweight material and magnesium metal is 80% lighter than steel it is 60% lighter than titanium and 33% lighter than aluminum, yet its weight to strength ratio is just as strong as steel. So it is a significant weight reduction on vehicles, planes, spaceships, military equipment that we desperately need today, not only to meet environmental challenges ahead of us, but also competitively with other growing economies and, and, and ones that are really making an impact like China and India. Is there, is there a lot of raw material around? Actually, that's the great part. The, the great news is we extract magnesium metal from an aggregate gravel called dolomite. It is abundant. It's the seventh most abundant material in the world. Thankfully, it's in every state in the United States. Um, we have access to, you know, hundreds of years of supply of it in the United States. And typically, dolomite has between 9 and 14% magnesium in it. The trick is extracting that magnesium from that dolomite. But it's abundant. It's everywhere. All right. So if it's abundant and, uh, you know, and you get 9 or 14% come out of what's abundant, that's still quite a bit, uh, why is magnesium not being better used in the United States now? You know, that's the question I asked when I first joined the company. I thought it was a little bit of a, a strange thing that there's such an abundance of this material, yet we don't produce it. And, and the reason for that is, is that when they started producing magnesium metal pre-World War I uh, in Germany, they realized that it was a very toxic process. In fact, so toxic um, that it produced pure chlorine gas. And in fact, they ended up using that pure chlorine gas in, in the trenches in World War I, which is why really it's it, the process of producing magnesium metal has been viewed as somewhat to extremely toxic. And so in the United States, the technology actually, I should, I should step back and say that there have been no new plants built in the United States in the last 50 years and no new technological breakthroughs on a mass scale in the last 65 years. In fact, the largest producer of magnesium metal in the world is China. There's only 1 million metric tons being produced every year. 850,000 of that comes from China. And they limit, obviously, for, for reasons where they don't want us to be competitive, they limit um, uh, the supply of magnesium metal. They're stockpiling it on their end. Um, but they, they've limited that for us. But the tech that they use in China is very, very old and somewhat extremely toxic. The EPA would never allow that in the United States. So the only breakthrough, the only way we can bring back real production of magnesium metal on a scale that's acceptable for assembly line industries like the auto aerospace airline and so forth is to make it an eco-friendly process. That's the trick to all of this. And that's what they haven't been able to figure out in the past until today where our technology has been able to solve that problem. So, so you have some uh, mechanism for uh, doing in a clean way what everybody else is making a mess doing or doing in a non-eco-friendly way. 
Yeah, and and actually, I I would say that really, when when eleven years ago, when the company started, uh, the chairman and the board of directors were really at, at the time very focused on on three things. They had to prove really three concepts. One, we had to be price competitive with the largest producer in the world, and that's China, as I mentioned. Number two, the technology had to be scalable, which currently today it is not. If I build a thirty thousand metric ton plant. That's exactly all I'm ever going to produce out of it because it's not scalable. And we thought for efficiencies and future growth, it had to be scalable. So that's concept number two that we had to get. The third one today is the most important and the one that really I'm most proud of, uh, and that is we are zero waste and zero toxicity. We wouldn't be the cleanest magnesium metal plant in the world. We would simply be the cleanest metal plant in the world. And that's something that I'm really proud of because I believe that you can be environmentally environmentally responsible and you can be profitable at the same time. You don't have to compromise one for the other. You can do both. And we can be the tip of the spear when it comes to industry being built in the United States for US industry that's eco-friendly and that's profitable. So, so that's the difference. So um, does being eco-friendly end up costing more? Does the commodity cost more when you're done because it's been extracted, produced, and processed in this new way? No, it doesn't. In fact, you know, the only cost really that people, you know, and this is where you have to really uh, articulate the vision of the company very well when you're raising money because when you're building something like this, it's not like you get together and say, you know what, we're going to hammer this out in six months. If that was the case, then everybody would be doing it. Whenever you're doing something that's disruptive, that's going to change the way we do things, it takes time. And you have to articulate that to your shareholders. The cost is upfront. You're spending time figuring out how this thing works. And most shareholders, especially in today's world, People don't tend to think long-term. People think short-term. And why? Because now we're focused on stocks like Tesla and Facebook and Twitter, where you know we see that growth happen really, really fast on a daily basis. It goes up and down. People can get in and out. And you're really basically showing up to investors and saying, look, you know, we're going to have you invest in our company. It's going to take five to seven years for it to materialize. We're going to maybe make mistakes along the way. And geez, we want you to stick in there and, and support us doing it. And when you put it that way, people look at you and go, well, why are we going to invest with you? But the cost, in my opinion, the real cost is twofold. One is financially at the beginning because you're building out this disruptive technology. And two, you really have to have the right team and the right group of people around you that can articulate and stick to the vision that you laid out in the beginning for where you want to go. And that's also costly because you're spending money on that talent. And that's where people miss it sometimes that you're going to get to you're going to get to the promised land, but it's going to cost you along the way. But once you're there, you you're in the promised land. And and that's the approach that I've taken with it. You know, um, uh, our office produces a trend report uh, every year. And, and one of the trends that we've identified, short-term, long-term. And what the United States does, how we operate on this very, very short-term quarter-to-quarter deal, it's not working. It's not working in the long run because our great competitors, uh, mostly Asia, Japan, China, and those, uh, they take a 50 and 100-year-long view. Uh, 100 year long view. 
And you can't compete with people that take a hundred year view and work quarter by quarter. And we have to do a better job of looking forward in time. But the question, so, so that's a good thing for you, I, I imagine, that people are going to start becoming more aware of a trend like that. But what, what concerns me, uh, what, what I want to understand is if it takes a long time and you're working on this disruptive technology, is it possible to be disrupted during the course of your disruption if it takes too long? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it, it can be very, look, you know, I always say that, that, you know, when they built the first rockets to go to the moon, you know, they didn't build the first rocket and went to the moon. They built several rockets that exploded. They didn't just sit back on the first explosion and say, well, we tried our best, you know, we're, we're going home now. Sorry, we spent several billion dollars putting this rocket together, but it didn't work. They went back to the drawing board and they were able to to fix it and move on and, and get to the next level. I think the problem corporations have and CEOs have is we're so trained not to tell the, not, not that we, not that people want to lie, but we're so trained to manage expectations. I always love when people tell me I'm managing expectations. You're only managing telling me the truth. And I think that shareholders are smarter than that if you just say what it is. Look, folks, we're trying our best. We had a failure. We're getting back to the drawing board. We know where we think we made mistakes and we're going to fix it. You have to allow the shareholder to make the decision of whether they want to stick with you or not, not you making it for them. And if you can build that kind of trust along the way, then you can fail along the way and fix it and move on. If you don't want to build that trust with your shareholders, especially in our type of company, then you are missing on the biggest support mechanism you can have from your shareholders. If you get them involved in what's going on in your ups and downs, they will be your biggest champions if they understand what it is. Frustration from shareholders only comes when they're left in the dark. I'm sure, Joel, you've heard it a thousand times. We haven't heard news releases from the company. We don't know what's going on with management. We're not sure why things have gone quiet. You've heard it a thousand times, I'm sure. And that's because we're not articulating. We're not saying what's going on. We're not calling our shareholders and telling them what effect, uh, you know, what, what the effects are of what we're doing today. But if you can articulate that well, if you can build that trust with them, then you can afford the little failures along the way and you can fix them and move on. That, that, that's yeah. really how we operate. Let, let me let me understand something. Um, you know, do you have what what is your mix of uh, professional investors versus retail investors? I mean, do you have much support from professional people? Well, oddly enough, you know, when when I became the executive president and CEO of the company, I did not feel that we were ready to go to institutional financiers and pitch them this idea. And the reason is, is because at the inception of the company, they spent so much time on the R&D that they didn't really develop the corporate side. And you need to develop the corporate side to articulate what it is you're going so financiers can look at you and say, okay, we're in or we're out. So I thought that we needed to build that first and put the corporate on the same footing as the technology so we can really drive this company to the next phase. That started for me just slightly over two and a half years ago, where we laid out the plan for where we wanted to go. Unfortunately, one year of that has been COVID. So, so it really, you know, slows you down a little bit on your planning. But, but you know, our, our vision was to build the corporate. I didn't feel that we had the right, the, the right setup for institutional financiers. So instead, we built our own IR team in the company internally. 
And we went out there and explained our vision shareholder at a time. And literally we talk to every shareholder that comes in the company, because again, it goes back to my previous statement. When you're building something long-term, you got to find the right shareholders at first to support that vision. You know, when you get going and the market gets going and you start trading and things start happening, you don't worry about that as much because there's always going to be the in and out. But initially you have to build a foundation in two ways. One, you got to build a really good shareholder base. And two, you got to find the right management that's going to follow this, this all the way through. And if you have that combination, you, you can withstand the long-term effects, but we have not had any institutional financing. That's something that we are starting at this phase of, of our corporate. We're a year behind, obviously, because of COVID, but now, now that everything's coming back to life, we're starting that process now again. You know, I, I would say that um, most people who are not in the money business, and clearly you are, having been around the money business for a long time, I'm in the money business, that, you know, people who are not familiar with that, they don't realize what you just said. They don't really understand they, they just think that all money is the same sheet of green, and it's not. Uh, th- there are people who like this. There are people who like that. Uh, I, I'm not surprised here you don't have professional investors. I would be surprised to hear you if you said you did because, you know, you have this long time horizon. Those people don't have the same uh, patience level that you require. And the other thing is that your deal, uh, you know, revolves around kind of an affinity, kind of a, a passion that people have for uh, certain kinds of things like ecology like mining. I mean, that that's an interest group that people would have. So it, it makes great sense to me. And I think for the audience, for uh, other executives who are trying to raise money, you, you don't just go get any money from any person who will give it to you. Uh, there really is better money for different situations than others, right? I mean, that's certainly got to be your experience. If you'd have taken the wrong kind of money, uh, you know, they'd be on fire and you'd have a hard time. Yeah, Joel, you, you couldn't be more accurate. You know, I, I tell you, so I've been part of a disruptive technology before in my past. In fact, it's one of the reasons why I was selected as the as the executive president and CEO here. It's because I've had this experience before. And when people look, you know, ask me the question, well, what is the greatest thing you learned during that process? What is it that you learned at that time? And what I really learned is how to take money. You know, when you're young and you're starting out and you take money, you think that you're solving every problem that's possible. And what you're solving is short-term problems, but not the long-term problems that you can't envision at the moment. Your job as the CEO is not to try to figure out every problem that's going to happen in the future, but to just simply understand that it's going to happen. Do I have the right money behind me to solve those problems? Are they going to be patient with me? Are they going to be patient with our management? Are we all gonna be out because we weren't given enough time to fix this and move on? Is the company gonna be disassembled because the financiers think we don't wanna throw any more money at this to make it work? Finding the right money is so important and vital that I would say that's probably in the top three reasons why companies fail or succeed and CEOs fail and succeed or management teams fail or succeed. It's because they don't know how to take that money. We're so desperate to solve the problem today. We're so anxious, we're so stressed out that we will take it just to end the pain today, but they have no clue how painful it is in the future. And you know, I I often tell people, you know, when you make money, it's great. Everybody's happy. So when you take money and you make money, 
you know, in the old days when I was making money, I could have shot five people in my office and my shareholders would have showed up and says, hey, don't worry about it. You've had a stressful day. Why don't you go home? We'll, we'll clean up the body. But that's that everybody knows. You know, that that's, of course, you're making the money. Nobody's going to say no to that. It's when you're not making the money or something's gone wrong that you truly know the relationship that you're in with the money that you've borrowed. And you've got to be patient and not be stressed out and not panic. Never panic. Take the money right. You'll grow and develop. Take the money wrong so, and so you me, a very me, high risk of failing. So let me ask Let me ask a different kind of set of questions. Uh, uh, when did you guys go public? Right off the, right from the beginning, 11 years ago, the chairman oh, 11 of the years ago. Went, went public. And, and, and why, let me, So let me ask this. The process of going public is very expensive. Staying public is very expensive. Why did you guys go public if you were going to take money mostly from probably high net worth people? Why didn't you just do a private placement, uh, you know, to kind of get you to the next level and or do a couple of rounds of a private placement to get you to uh, whatever level you needed to be at uh, before you went public? Well, again, that goes back to structural. You know, I mentioned before that the corporate was not developed. It was the tech that was being developed. And I think that one of the mistakes, I mean, look, hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, when you look at it, you know, I've inherited a company today that I've been able to take to the next level, but I couldn't have taken to the next level unless the people before me had put something there for me to take to the next level. Every level you're compromising and making decisions that you don't necessarily want to make, but you do them to make, you do it to make the company survive and move to the next stage. It's easy as a CEO today to look back and say, what were you guys thinking? But if I was in their shoes at that time, I might have made the same decision for survivability. I might have made it to try to take the best money I can, grow the company as best as I can, and move it along and move it forward. And that's what they did. They, they literally moved the ball five yards down the field so I can pick up the ball and run with it. And that's something that you have to recognize. You cannot go into a company and say, you guys missed the whole thing. You, you could have done X. You could have done Y. You... That's hindsight's 2020, and nobody was putting up their own cash at the time to get it done. It was these people like the chairman and the, and the board of directors and the scientists that were involved that were really giving up their time and their effort to get this to the next stage. But when you look back on it, there are some things that you can learn, and those things help you move forward. They help you design what the next steps are, because hopefully you learn from those mistakes. And one of the things we looked at is they automatically did, did something like a reverse takeover. So it was easy because mm -hmm. their focus was about developing the tech because in their minds, no tech, what's the point of spending money on corporate? If we weren't going to prove those three concepts, what was the point of developing anything else? It sounds reasonable in thought, but really when you look back on it, it would have probably been better to say, let's keep this company private. Let's raise a couple of, let's raise a bit of money to prove the concept. And once it's once it's developed, let's emerge on a, on a market that really supports us. Remember, this conversation is not just about taking money, but also understanding if you are a publicly traded company, is the is the 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 is the exchange that I'm on the right exchange for my business? Is it right for me? Now I look at the Vancouver. We're on. We're primarily on the TSXV. As an example here, we're on the TSXV. TSXV is great for mining companies, sort of 
companies like cannabis, which might be flavor of the month, like technology was back in the day, you know, that's what it's limited to. It's a venture, but it's focused on mining. Now, when we first started, part of the problem of doing this reverse takeover is we got looked at as a mining company, but we're not a mining company. We're an industrial technology company. So when financiers look at you on the stock exchange and they say you're a mining company and they look at your company and they go, but you're not mining anything, they get very confused. That's when you learn that it's not just about taking the wrong money. It's about knowing who your audience is. Am I on the right exchange? Should I be here? Should I be somewhere else? Am I in the right country? Should I be pitching this to somebody else? Those are all things that have to be taken into consideration. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something else. I mean, what it sounds to me is they probably didn't have the same clarity that you have now. And they probably didn't describe it as, you know, as something that's not mining. I mean, they probably described it in a way that whoever was listening assumed it was mining. If they would have talked about processing and the technologies around processing, which you've been very clear about, uh, and it's not about extraction, it's not about the baseline activities of, of bringing the stuff out of the ground, but it's the next step of environmentally uh, friendly and clean way of, you know, taking the thing to the next place. Uh, that might have been also part of what's going wrong. And, and again, this is not about being critical or uh, hindsight or anything else. It's, this is really about executives who listen, uh, what they need to be thinking about when they're thinking about uh, themselves going out to get more capital, raise more money, uh, go public, you know, because there's a lot of different ways to get money and going public isn't the only one, uh, you know, right. and, and the, I'll tell you Absolutely. the other thing is that there probably were some investment bankers that sold them on a, you know, on a reverse merger. There's some investment banker guys that probably made a bunch of dough and they, they got them to, to, to do something. It may or may not have been the best thing for them, but some guys made a bunch of dough and, you know, and, and they figured, well, it's pretty good. It should help them, but maybe it wasn't perfect. So you're, you're right. And I'll tell you something that, you know, when, when I first sat down with our board of directors and the scientists, you know, I realized very quickly that you know, when you're dealing with scientists, it's like herding cats, you know, their, their minds are, are creative, you know, they're creating something out of nothing. And so they're very creative. And it dawned on me very quickly that they were building the city on the hill. And I, and I finally said to them, I said, you're building the city on the hill. And they said, well, what's wrong with that? I said, I just want to build the highway that gets us to the hill. We'll subdivide when, when we get there. We need to lay down this highway, this path to get us to the hill. The hill is not, it's no good to anybody if there's no road leading up to the hill. And we got to build that. And I think people are always, this is the pie in the sky stuff that people are, you know, people always sit down with me and go, this is a multi-billion dollar, you know, maybe it is, but let me first build the road to get us there. And then we'll see whether it's a multi-billion dollar. I think it is. I want to say that it is, but I don't want to sell you on something that has not been foundationally and structurally sound. Let's build it first. Let's build the highway. You know, let, let me let me uh, let, let me ask another. This is a hard question. I've 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 dealt with this myself, and I've had a hard time with it. Uh, so you've got a bunch of scientists that are going to build this new mechanism for doing something that's never been done before. Uh, you know, guys like you and me have no way of knowing if they're making progress, if it's what they're telling you is true. If, if, it, if it ever is going to come to pass and if the road is heading to the, the house on the hill or if it's going into the ocean, we, we, we don't know. How do you know that what you guys are building is, in fact, going to do what it is that you want 
so you can, with a straight face, keep making promises to investors? How do you know that? Well, actually, that's that's an easy question for me. It's not the hard question for me. It's the easy one. And there's really two ways of doing this. One's internal and one's external. I tell you where scientists get into trouble and where CEOs and management teams get into trouble with those scientists. You know, again, something that happened when I initially sat down with the board of directors of this company, I asked them the simple question of what is it that you do? And they gave me some fantastical answers. I mean, <laughs> ones that were mind boggling and they gave me this vision that was unreal. And I nodded politely and I wrote down every vision that they had. And I, you know, I, but I nodded politely and I didn't disagree or say anything. I just, you know, I accepted what they said. And finally, one scientist in the group turned to me and he said, well, what is it that you think we do? I said, I just thought you produced magnesium metal. And, and, and they started to laugh because they realized that the epiphany of that was, was that's true. That's all we are. We're, we're, it's not sexy. It's not, our job is to produce the metal. It's other people's job to build cars with that metal, planes with that metal, equipment with that metal. One of the ways that you can keep your scientists on track and know that what they're doing is right and it's working is to always focus on the thing that you are working on and not start getting into other areas. And especially this is a problem with technology companies. There's always the delays. Give us four more months, we're gonna have the next generation out. Give us three more months, we're gonna make this better. It's always going to get better. It's always going to be different. So you got to focus them on one task and one task only. Can you give me magnesium metal? And I want to see that happen in these time periods. And if you miss these time periods, then I know that you're not accomplishing this one task that's in front of you. Minimize the tasks in front of them so they can focus on the one thing. That's number one. That's internal. The external part of it is you get third-party third-party certifying companies to come in and do that for you. So, for example, when I say third-party evaluators or third-party, you know, advisors, in our case, we built that technology. It wasn't enough. I knew that it wouldn't be enough for us to go out there and tell everybody that we are going to create this and do this and, and look at our tech. It's so fantastic because part of the problem is that we can't tell you about our tech because it's a secret. So, my job becomes more difficult to articulate. Hey, I know this works, but I can't tell you why it works. So you get third-party companies involved. Third, in our case, we got third-party engineering firms, some of the biggest in the United States, to come in, to look at it, to make the drawings again, and stamp it. So if somebody was to come to us and say, does it work? I can say, absolutely, and it's been certified by a third party. That costs money, and most people miss the step. If they have no clue how much money they can raise with that third-party valuation, and they have no clue how much money their company could raise or their market cap can grow if their valuation on what they've just done grows because it's been third-party certified. So you might spend money today, and, and I get this question all the time. Why are you spending money on this? You should be focused on X. But what they don't realize is I'm laying down the foundation for being valued and evaluated at the same time in the future. And that's what's going to grow the market cap of the company. And that's what's going to articulate, I should say, and refocus the company from being a mining company to a technology company as we've been trying to do. Yeah. You know, um, I'll tell you, all, all this stuff, I mean, we always talk about the inside track, the best, fastest, smartest way to get things done. And uh, you, you have certainly kept the focus 
on, on the value proposition of the processing, uh, you know, and, and clearly in the past, they probably had some problems articulating that as well as it's being articulated now. I'm just, I'm just taking a guess because none of us were there at that time. But just my guess is that, uh, you know, that there probably was uh, some drift that happened and, and you've kind of brought it back to uh, exactly where it needs to be. So, uh, so just let's, let's focus on the stock part. So now you've got this public company, you got all, it's a, it's a micro cap company, um, you know, it costs something to keep going. Are you guys focused on stock price or are people selling their shares? Is there any liquidity in these shares? I mean, what's, what's happening in your marketplace? Well, the stock's been growing. I mean, and, and again, it's a very difficult thing during COVID with, with so many companies not only wanting money, but trying to stay alive. A lot of setbacks to a lot of industries. You know, our, our industry is, is even, or the classification as speculative company makes it worse. But I'm very proud to say that our stock has continuously grown. It It, it has grown. So when I started, we were about four or five cents. We're now 25 cents. Uh, on the TSXV, we're 20 cents on the OTCQB. And so we continue to grow. And I think we probably would have reached a, a bigger milestone had COVID not come around. I hate using COVID as an excuse because I always say it's not about us. It's not internal because we kept open, we stayed open, and we worked very hard at it. I think outside factors come into play, fears that the public has. Should I sell my shares? Shouldn't I, should I hang on? Um, so we've done well during this period of time. Obviously, you always wanted to get better. Is it a big focus of mine to look at the shares every day? And the answer is no. I think that the shareholders pay me to focus on the work that we're supposed to do, not on the share price every day. And I think that CEOs that run publicly traded companies worry all day about two things, what the bulletin boards are saying about them personally, and what the stock price is. Tell you what, do your job and nobody's gonna complain and the stock is gonna rise. You achieve those milestones, then what are they gonna say about you? Oh, you're a bad guy? No, everybody's gonna respect what you've built and they're, they're gonna show that and it's gonna reflect that in the, in the price of your shares. One of the things that we very, I'm not only staying focused on what it is that we're producing, which is magnesium metal, but very focused on the management team doing their job. That's what you got to focus on. Every day is a battle. You go into that office, you do your job, you walk out, the rest will solve itself. If you're sitting there paralyzed by what people say about you and you have fear about losing your job or you have fear that the stock is going to go down, then you'll never do your job. So our market's been growing. Our, our value's been growing. And we still have not yet fully re uh, or articulated that we're a, a technology company and not a mining company. And that's been happening over the last year. I think the public now is starting to go, oh, my God, they're not a mining company. They're an industrial technology company. And look at the value of the tech that they've produced. But you got to stay very focused. Don't <laughs> panic. So don't when when, uh, when when are operations going to begin? I mean, are you guys pretty close to making it happen? Yeah, so right now in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, Canada, we're building our first uh, or our, our commercialized pilot plant, I should say, not our first. I would, I would like to think of it as our first plant, but it's really a commercialized pilot plant. It is the plant by which all big plants will be built. Uh, it's the model 
that we will be moving forward. All plants in the future will be built only in the United States. And so right now that commercialized pilot plant is coming online fully um, by the end of this year, by end of 2021. Um, you'll see in our new press releases that we have um, finished building our reactor. That reactor is going to get tested and start producing metal within the next uh, 60 to 90 days. Um, and then full scalability of the commercialized pilot will happen by the end of the year. So we'll start producing metal. And even on the full scale of, of that metal being produced in the commercialized pilot plant, it's really for the purposes of R&D and to send out to all the different industries for certification. And we're gonna know two things. One, they're gonna come back to us and say, hey, we want the metal in this form bar form, pellet form, molten form, and they're gonna tell us how much metal they want. And that'll help us design and build the big plants that will take, that will go into operations within the next three to four years on a full scale. So the commercialized pilot plant, we will start testing for metal in the next 60 to 90 days, full scalability on the commercialized pilot plant within by the end of the year. And then that lays down the foundational work for the big plants being built in the United States, which we hope to see in the next three to four years. Well, listen, Sam, thank you so much for sharing what you're doing. You, you know, listen, I, I think you've made a huge difference from where the company was to where it is now. And I'm sure you feel like there's a long way to go, but uh, certainly you guys are on the track. And uh, thanks for sharing the uh, the journey with us. Listen, I very much appreciate it. And thanks for the time, Joel. It's been a pleasure well. being on. Nice to have you on the show. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer, David Wolf, and the team at Autovita Studios. Profit from the Inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals. To learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show, reach out to www.audivita.com. That's A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A dot com. Produced by Audivita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.